Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Revolution Recap. Uh, Revolution are coming off of a very demoralizing 2 nothing loss to expansion side FC Cincinnati, despite a uh, less than ideal lineup for Cincinnati uh, after they were missing some players on an international break. Uh, Cincinnati still made their debut at Gillette Stadium and came away with a 2 nothing victory. Um, New England still without a win this season, one point through four games, uh, and certainly a lot of questions uh, after such a disappointing start, one of the worst starts in Revolution history. Uh, I'm Greg Johnstone. Uh, we apologize for the uh, Better Late Than Never podcast. We had a bit of a mix-up with our schedules, and similar to the Revolution, we decided not to show up on Sunday. So here we are in the middle of the week. Uh, as usual, I am joined by Sean Donahue. Sean, how's it going? You know, it's been a, a interesting week since the since the revolution lost that game. So I'm kind of glad we waited a bit to to have a bit more topics to talk about, other than everything we've been talking about all the past weeks, because that's pretty much what happened in the game. Yeah, I, I actually was up in Canada this past weekend visiting some family, so I had my phone in airplane mode uh, throughout most of the day. And when I got back to a spot with Wi-Fi. Uh, I, I kind of saw the result. It wasn't an ongoing thing because I'm sure if I had seen uh, in the first half that they were down one nothing, I would have been scrolling Twitter saying, there's no way they keep losing. They're, they have to come back and win this game. So I'm really glad that uh, it was kind of like jumping into the deep end and seeing – uh, you know, <laughs> seeing the house on fire midway through instead of seeing the fire build up uh, uh, over time. So, um, yeah, certainly a lot of things to get to today. I, I can't ever – I don't think I've ever seen a season kind of go to shreds this quickly. We're not even out of March yet, and people are already talking about the season being over. Um, so, Sean, we'll, we'll dive into this game as much as we can. I, I don't think uh, – we're going to have a lot of positivity today, but um, give me your uh, TK key takeaway from uh, Sunday's match. I mean, it's it's hard to be too positive, giving us the worst start to a season for the Revolution since two thousand and one before before the Steve Nichol era. Um, you know, my key takeaways from this match are just that it, what we saw the first three games wasn't a fluke. I think there were you know a, a lot of excuses that were thrown out there for the, the Revolution's performances in the first three games. They were just absolutely terrible in this game, um, and you know the, the concerns that we had that they didn't have a plan B when the press wasn't working. I think were again highlighted in this game. Cincinnati was a team that you know. No, they weren't really sitting back, um, but they also weren't the the most threatening team to the Revolution either. And you know, the Revolution struggled to break them down again, particularly in the first half. Um, so it was just another one of those games where you know, the Revolution, when they got forward, ran out of ideas and, and struggled to create. A, you know, there's a bit more in the second half. There was one or two chances that maybe they should have done better with. Um, but this was a Cincinnati team that you could you know pretty much call a, a USL plus team, given all the regular starters that were missing to international duty um, for this game. And in the Revolution were outplayed by them it wasn't you know it wasn't bad luck that they lost this game they deserved to lose this game um so i think you know like i've been saying a lot this season um the revolution attack doesn't have a, you know plan b when when the press doesn't work and cincinnati wasn't a team that was playing in a way that you know it made the press particularly effective um and so it just just another one of those games that that shows you the revolution don't know what to do when they get in the attacking third and they're not creating chances off of turnovers and, and Sean, I, I kind of want to touch on something because, yeah, I, I think the key 
point we can take from this first month of the season is there's absolutely no offense. Um, I, I, it seems like we're being a bit of a broken record. We kind of talk about, I know we've mentioned expected goals in the past and the revs come away with somewhere between one and 1.5 and they've had two penalties so far this season. Um, this game, they had 1.25 expected goals, which is quite sad for a, uh, a home game, which seems like a must win. You need some momentum. Um, you know, you want to come out after a tough result in Toronto. Um, but there doesn't seem to be any offensive firepower. I look at the guys lining up in the attacking midfield and at striker, and I, I don't understand how this team isn't producing. Do you do you feel the same way, or do you think that maybe we overrated uh, the Revolution's attacking core going into the season? I mean, I think there's a lot of talent in the attack. I think Fagundes and Panier are both guys that are very capable of creating chances. Um, Carly's heel, I think, has been good for the Revolution. Um, you know, the first couple games, I think it took him to get going, but uh, the past few, I think he's been, you know, really good for this team and um, showing what he can do. Um, but with that said, I think, you know, Panier, Fagundes, heel, um, don't necessarily play that well together. Uh, you know, Fagundes, I think we've discovered, is, is better on the left flank, um, or I think we probably already knew that. Pania is better on the left flank. Um, and I think Heal does his best producing when he gets a little bit over to the left side of the field. Uh, so you have three really talented players that maybe don't combine that well together. You know, and, and in preseason two, we saw Pania and Castillo combine a few times and, and look good, but um, we haven't seen them combine enough in, in the regular season either. I think Castillo and Pania are you know, arguably two of the Revolution's best, you know, three or four players. Um, but the two of them together haven't looked that great down the left flank. You know, there's a lot of times when they pass the ball back and forth, but they kind of get in each other's way, and, and, and it makes it a little bit more difficult for either of them to, to find space. Um, so, you know, yes, I still think there's a lot of talent in this Revolution offense, but, you know, I wonder if it's the, the best combination together. I, I think Fagundes, Heal, Pania are their three most talented offensive midfielders and, and guys that can create, um, but it, it, it doesn't necessarily seem to work when they're on the field together because, you know, arguably the three of them want to be in the same space in the field, and that's, you know, where their best is kind of more out into that left side. Uh, you know, Heal is obviously drifting everywhere and, and playing defense, but, um, you know, I, I still think when he gets the ball you know, a little bit more off to the left to center that's when he's looked his best no I, I totally agree and i think there is kind of some overlap in terms of uh skills and positions and uh it, it seems to me too that there's been a lot of rotation on who's in, on the left side who's on the right side who's in the center um it seems like they came into the season without a clear picture of who was where so um maybe they'll figure it out i hope they do but uh certainly not off to um the right start um i want to also add a bit of a wrinkle too and i want to know because we kind of talk every week about where we play guys you know we've talked about you know do we re put christian Pena back in the lineup where do we put diego um who do we start at striker um and i i, I think all of that is a bit of a moot point um when the effort isn't there and you know brad Friel talked about work rate i feel like it's been a theme with him him throughout his entire tenure with New England that the players are not playing uh, the way he wanted to. And in his post-game comments, he said, you know, there's no real motivation with these guys. You know, there's no fans waiting by their cars. There's no relegation. Um, he, he almost made it seem like the entire locker room is content producing um, below uh, average results and mediocre results. Um, that that really didn't move the needle for me because, as I say, he's been saying that all along. But um, I think Antonio De La Mea coming out and saying, yeah, there were guys here that weren't even giving 50%. Um, I, I don't remember his exact quote, but really called out the effort. And I think that is probably the biggest problem that they have right now 
is that there are guys on the field that clearly week after week aren't giving the best production. I, I think Brad Friedel said there were six players. I, I I don't know if I'd name six players as guys that yeah, I can five pinpoint. Or six. Say, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if I have that many that I can pinpoint and say, you know, this guy needs to get off of the field. But there are a couple guys that I kind of look at and I kind of shake my head and, and I really think it's holding the team back. And, and I, 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 I don't know if it is as deep as, you know, they don't respond well under Brad Friedel. I don't know if they've already um, just kind of hit a mental block where they've kind of accepted losing. I, I'm not really sure what's going on, but um, I, I feel like the, the discussion of tactics is a bit of a moot point when the 11 guys you send out on the field aren't giving it their all and they aren't giving it their best. And um, I, I truly believe, too, with the ridiculously poor attendance that was there on Sunday, the people that showed up to that game should have gotten a refund because um, it is totally inexcusable to lose to a, <laughs> you know, expansion team actually missing five starters uh, when you play your A team at home in need of a win. Um, just overall horrible, horrible effort. And uh, my, my key takeaway is that I, I think there are guys on the field that don't care and we need to take them off. And I know you didn't name any names, but the first one that comes to my mind is Zahibo. Yep. <laughs> you know, yep. You, I was you, ready to jump right into it. You, you look I, you look I, at I that first to... goal. <laughs> How many times have we had this conversation, though, where, I mean, his job is to be a defensive midfielder. That is why he's there. He he and he he doesn't play defense. I, I he's not that great of a distributor. Um, he seemingly you, you mean gets, you mean a sixty two percent passing accuracy in this game didn't make up for his uh, defense. <laughs> I mean no no it, it, I I find it hard to um, list off superlatives for Zahibo that can um, justify how many times we talk about a defender getting behind him. And Zahibo being one or two steps behind, and Zahibo either doesn't have the speed to make it up or he doesn't have the effort to make it up. And either way, it's a massive, massive problem. And I think that first goal, we saw a little bit of both where a guy gets in behind him. He It, it looks like, actually, if you look at the replay, it looks like the referee is, is signaling a, that there was a foul, that Zahibo fouled him, but he played advantage. Um, and the guy, I mean, Zebo just doesn't seem to make any effort whatsoever to catch up. He leaves a man wide open in the box and it leads to an early goal. Um, just... I, I don't know how many times we have to talk about Wilfred Zahibo not tracking a guy back into the box. And well, and he gets beaten a lot, a lot. This is the third or fourth time. This is the third or fourth goal this season we've talked about it. Well, and we talked about it in the offseason, too. And I think we, we both said that he needed to improve his game a lot if he was going to play this year. I think he's gotten worse this year. Um, you know, if you look at his passing percentage, he passed at 77.4% last year. And you could say, oh, that's, you know, that's decent for a central midfielder. Um, you know, ignoring his defense, that's not bad. This year, he's passing at 67%. So he's dropped more than 10% from where he was last year to a really atrocious percentage for a central midfielder. Um, if you, you know, basing just on who scores ratings, he was a 6.72 last year average. Now he's a 6.34. You know, he's gotten a yellow card in three or four games and has been at risk of getting a red card in a few of them with his, with his kind of sloppy play. Um, You know, there's, there's no redeeming qualities about his game right now. I don't know why he's out in the field and why he started off four games. You know, Friedel has been someone that's been quick to to pull the hook on a guy. Um, He benched 
you know, Zahibo for a lot of the, the second half of the season last year because of his poor play. And I'm not sure why he's still out there right now. Um, you know, again, it's it's harsh to put all the blame on one guy because there are a lot of guys that, you know, haven't been pre- performing up to snuff. But the, the one that really sticks out when you watch these games is, is certainly Zahibo. Um, you mentioned tracking back and, and tracking runners. You know, we also see that in set pieces frequently where he loses his runner there. I, I just I'm not sure what he's providing to this team on the field other than, you know, some height on offensive set pieces. Well, I, I kind of think, too, that Friedel wants to play with one defensive midfielder or central midfielder, depending on how you want to classify them, um, you know, jumping up and pressing and, and kind of trying to force turnovers in the attacking half. And, and I think that's something that Scott Caldwell does. I think they want to uh, make Luis Ca- uh, uh, Caicedo do that as well. Um, and I think they want they, they intend on Zahibo being the guy that kind of stays home and kind of covers for him. The problem is they don't he doesn't cover for whoever is pressing. And we saw that in the, the Columbus game where Caldwell pushes up and Zahibo doesn't slide over. He's more or less ball watching. And by the time he realizes that he needs to cover, get over and cover for Caldwell on the near side of the field, um, the break is on and Pedro Santos gets across into the box. So, I mean, I, it might be situational awareness. It might be um laziness it might be speed i'm not sure what it is but it's such a clear problem that you'd think they have to pull the plug on zahibo and maybe just use him as a guy that goes out there 30 minutes so he doesn't get gassed maybe i'm not sure how you use him um that can justify kind of the mistakes we've seen but yeah i mean exhibit 1a on people not trying i think you have to circle wilfred zahibo as kind of the the goat there yeah, and I think Scott Caldwell is perfectly capable of you know, being that guy that, that drops back and covers guys if that's what he's asked to do. I think a lot of the games this season we've seen Friedel, you know, give him the opportunity to go forward more. But if, if that's what the Revolution need him to do, you know, we saw him do it a lot under Jay Heaps, and I think he can certainly do it under under Friedel as well if, if you know, Friedel tells him to play that role. Um, you know, Caldwell obviously has his limitations too. You know, he's not the, the biggest guy, so physicality is maybe not the thing he's the best at even though he does you know throw his body around to the extent he can um uh, but he's a lot safer of a player than zahibo you know passes at 81 percent one of the guys that you know is least likely to turn the ball over um you know minus a, a few notable times last year that i think stuck out in people's memory but he's a he's certainly a guy that i think is capable of doing the the defensive work that zahibo hasn't done um you know i've talked before about uh you know how i would it would be great if the Revolution can go out there and find a, a truly dominant defensive midfielder to, to pair next to Caicedo or to pair next to, to Caldwell. Um, but, you know, in the absence of that, I think you know, Caldwell paired with Caicedo is absolutely the Revolution's best option out there and, and should be what we're seeing every week. Yep, yep. Um, let's try to be a little bit positive here, Sean. And, and this might be one of the few bright spots, but um, Carlos Seal uh, had another pretty decent game, had a, had a really solid shot. I don't have the minute. I think it was in like the 65th minute um, where he had a uh, really solid, solid shot to Richie's left. And then uh, Fagundes had a rebound that was also saved. That was really the only revolution chance of the night. Um, I think he had a solid effort compared to the rest of what we saw um what do you think of carlos seal's uh performance yeah i thought he you know had a good game he led the the match and chances created with four um Pena also had four um he also had he also had 32 passes successful passes in the attacking third the second highest in the in the game not just revs was Pena with 15 um so he was really driving the the revolution's attack and uh you know one thing that you don't necessarily notice um, unless you're paying really close attention, is the amount of times he wins possession um, in the final third. And he's actually leading all of MLS right now um, with 12 times that he's won possession in the final third, uh, second highest being Mark Anthony Kay at, at eight, so four ahead of him. And then third highest being Diego Fagundes with, with five. Um, so Heal has won 
possession 12 times in the offensive third, 15 times in the midfield section, um, which is also, I would assume, near the top of the league in that category. Uh, so he's, you know, you talk about the revolution trying to press and what Friedel wants his team to do. Um, he's obviously putting in the effort and to do it, and that's, you know, showing in, in that, that work rate and that uh, amount of times that he's won the ball in the offensive third. That's something that, that really impresses me because the number 10 you don't necessarily expect to, to put in that kind of effort. And we talked about it two weeks ago when he, you know, was seen back there kind of tracking back and covering it right back when Brandon Bio was pushed forward. Um, but, you know, he's one guy who I think you can't question the effort of when we're looking at players that, you know, are not giving it 100%. Yeah, and he goes back a lot too. Um, I mean, yeah, he, he really plays both sides of the ball and plays box to box. It's 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 really impressive to see uh, how how quick how how much he's back on the defensive side of the field and how he still is able to pretty much control everything going on the the offensive side. Um, I, I I also think it's interesting too because there is a narrative out there that you know Bradfield has brought in new players and it takes time for them to adjust and all that. I feel like Carlos Hill and um, Edgar Castillo might be the top two performing revolution players on the team. So I, I don't think it's an issue of having them adjust to the revolution. I, I think that the rest of the team is, I mean, as I say, they've either kind of already quit, which is uh, quite frankly pathetic, um, or they're adjusting to tactics. There's something else kind of unknown going on right now. But um, I, I think Edgar Castillo, I, I, I know you mentioned that he had some, uh, you know, didn't seem to mesh very well last game uh, with Fagundes and, and whoever's on the left. But uh, I think so far he's been a, a great addition to the team. Um, do you have any thoughts on Edgar Castillo uh, and his performance Sunday? Yeah, I mean, I, I think he's been a good addition to the team as well. I don't think Sunday was necessarily his his best performance, although I was surprised to see him subbed out for, for Jones in the 76th minute. Um, but they've you know used him a lot in the attack. He had a couple shots in this game, and he's been been heavily involved in the attack. I think his 68% passing accuracy in this match, you know, maybe maybe not the best stat, but still uh, 10 points higher than Brandon Bay, who's been um, n- not the greatest this year, I'd say. Um, but yeah, no, I think Castillo has been a really good addition to this team, and you know, with the level of talent he has and the level of talent Pania has, you would like to see them find a way for the two of them to combine a lot more down the left flank. Um, the problem being that I think you know Castillo is someone that likes to get to the end line and is great at putting crosses in, which is great. Um, um, but Pania also likes to, to push out wide as well. Uh, so I think they need to find a way for Pania to maybe pinch in a bit more when Castillo gets forward. But um, we haven't seen enough of that that yet. Uh, but with two guys as talented as them, it will be a shame if they can't figure that out. Yeah, and, and I do find it interesting, too. You mentioned that he was subbed off for Jones. I found that pretty interesting. And it makes me wonder if he is one of the players that um, – that that Brad Friel might have been talking about. I mean, normally, historically, you know, um, when someone is subbed off kind of early in the game, you know, a halftime sub or early in the game, I, I think Zahibo might be a candidate for uh, being sent to the bench because he was subbed off in the 53rd minute. Um, but uh, Castillo being subbed off was a bit random to me. Um, you're right. He didn't have his best game. Uh, he had uh, four ball recoveries in this game, three of them in the uh, uh, defensive half normally he gets some ball recoveries at midfield and on the attacking half um today he or on sunday he only had one um had a 69 percent pass completion um six for 13 in the attacking third um he also had two shots neither of them on target um so yeah i am curious if you know he didn't have the best game I, I it didn't stand out to me as he wasn't putting in effort or um he was overly poor but um, the fact that he got subbed off makes me wonder if he is one of the players that Friedel is talking about. I mean, there's really a 50-50 chance, five or six. Uh, so uh, I'm curious to see if he is um, starts next game. There's really not another option at left back. Um, but 
yeah, really confusing sub to me. Uh, I, I would have expected someone else come on, uh, maybe Agadello, uh, get another offensive player out there. But instead, they decided to take off Edgar Castillo. So um, very strange in my mind. Yeah, that was that was an odd one. And I, I think, you know, Friedel obviously loves how much pace Jones has. And I don't think Jones did particularly poorly when he came on. Um, but that was just a, a weird one to me. And they obviously made that sub in the 76th minute after they already used two subs. So um, just an interesting decision making on, on that one. And I'm not sure what that tells us. Um, you know, if you're looking at guys that they're going to swap out next week based on based on uh, effort, um, I don't think there's much of an option with Castillo just because there's nobody else to play left back except Gabriel Somi, and I think we all know that that's not going to be happening. Um, but, but yeah, on that note, it is very interesting that they subbed him out, and I think the Zahibo sub um, makes me very confident that he won't be starting next week. Uh, but other than that, it's you know it's pick your poison and, and, and take a 50-50 shot at which who those five or six players are that he wasn't happy with the effort of. Yeah, um, should be noted too. I, I, I want to mention that Jawan Jones played mostly on the right and and um, didn't. You know, he, he it appears like he didn't play exactly the same position as Edgar Castillo. So I, I don't think he's going to be replacing Edgar Castillo at left back as the starting. But I, I was just very confused or, or I don't know, very stunned because I wouldn't have thought Edgar Castillo was one of the uh, liabilities on the field. But it's makes, actually makes a question. it's actually funny oh, if you look at the the influence chart on this game and where players have their most influence. Uh, Bunbury, Pania, Heal, Fagundes, Caicedo, uh, number two, all of them are kind of bunched up in this you know little area um, in the center of the field, about you know thirty five yards out from Cincinnati's goal. So a lot of guys were like, like I was saying earlier, a lot of guys were were having um, a, a lot of the ball in the same spot of the field. Um, so yeah, Jones Jones didn't come in and, and play left back. He was you know more in the attacking half of the field and. Uh, and, and getting involved in the attack. So I don't think that the thought there is that he'll come in and, and start for Castillo next week, unless he changes formation and kind of you know goes to a three-man back line or something like that, which I, I don't expect to see yet. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't expect to see that either. Maybe when Andrew Farrell comes back and he can kind of play a center back, right back kind of hybrid. Um, but I and, – and also it should be noted that Andrew Farrell was available on the bench uh, for this game and didn't come in. I, I'd imagine they're not going to try to rush him back um, – in the meantime, with his eye injury, but um, yeah, me, I, I wouldn't expect a three-man uh, backline anytime soon. Um, while we're on the topic of the backline, uh, Sean, uh, a couple weeks ago we were giving them a lot of credit um, for kind of holding firm, uh, kind of keeping the team in games. Obviously, conceding only once in Dallas, uh, and then twice to Columbus. Really, it was once uh, with a w- one goal, and then one kind of nothing stoppage time goal that was kind of only mattered in the uh, goal differential column. Um, the past two games, uh, Toronto and uh, Cincinnati, uh, not as strong of a performance. Uh, any thoughts on the back line, and for that matter, uh, Brad Knighton's performance in goal? So I'll start with Knighton because I thought he had a poor game. But, uh, you know, my first thought there was there was that chance early on where, you know, dropped the ball out of his hands and kind of survived that by a missed shot. Um, but, you know, Friedel kind of hit on him after the game. And I agree with, with Friedel's assessment um, on that first goal where he kicked it right up to the, up the middle to, uh, to Lasso, who is six foot five. Um, and put up a 50-50 ball on a goal kick. Um, you know, I, Cincinnati is always going to be favored with the six foot five guy going up against Teal Bunbury, who himself is six foot two. But um, in a situation like that, I think Lasso is going to win it nine times out of ten. Um, and you know, as Friedel pointed out, he'd done that several times before. Uh, and you look at the Revolution's shape on that play. You had 
Mancien and De La Maya both outside of the 18-yard box, both like off on the flank. Um, so there was a big hole up the middle where it was just Zahibo. And, you know, there wasn't that much pressure on De La Maya or Mancien. So he could have, Knighton could have passed it to either one of them and just kept possession and played it safe instead of just booting a long ball up the field. And, you know, it was very predictable what would happen there. Uh, you know, Zahibo obviously didn't put enough effort in to win the second ball and you know, didn't do enough to track back. And there's just a wide open middle of the field because of the way that play was set up. Um, it's something that you know I talked a lot about last year with Matt Turner uh, being a guy that was a lot more willing to play short balls and, and keep possession. Um, but you know you sacrificed that with Brad Knighton, and you saw it on that play. Uh, I did not think this was a good game for Brad Knighton, and I would not be completely shocked um, if you know based on this game and of course the the fact that that first goal also was kind of right at him the shot. Um, you know that maybe we see a change in goalkeeper going into the next week. Um, so that's something that I'm going to keep an eye on for that game if, if that happens. As far as the the center backs go, uh, you know on that second goal, Mancien was very flat footed. I think I think he was in a position where if he had you know been more alert and active, he could have stepped up and, and blocked that cross. Um, and you know in general, I didn't think he had a pretty good game. Seventy point nine percent passing. Um, you know when you talk about the the effort of the team. Uh, you expect your captain, Man- Michael Mancien, to be a guy that kind of leads that and pushes his t- guys to get forward and pushes his guys to, to be at their best. Um, and I don't think we've seen enough leadership out of him. Um, you know, De La Maya, I thought, was was okay, uh, could have had a better game. You know, But Mancien stuck out more as someone that, that had a poor performance in this one. And, and you know, as I've been saying all along, I, I think Brandon Bay is being asked to push up a lot and I think is, you know, doesn't offer that much in the attack and uh, doesn't offer that much defensively. So I think when Andrew Farrell comes back, that, that'll be a spot that um, immediately switches is over to him uh with that said i don't think this was a particularly horrible game from from brandon by uh but you know the defense overall for the 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 good uh the good news we gave or the good reviews we gave them early in the season i don't think they certainly deserved based on this game no i i agree 100 percent, and i agree with a lot of what you said i i do want to touch before i i i kind of trash this defense i i do want to say you mentioned michael mancien uh, and and i i meant to mention this uh when I was talking about my key takeaway and the lack of effort, I'm not sure what the record is since Michael Mancien came in, but I've seen everywhere that the Revs have, th- you know, they're three, 12 and five or something along that, you know, in their last 20 games or something like that. Michael Mancien, he kind of came in at the end of the season. I know morale was low. I know he needed some time to adjust, but um, I-, I think he, he certainly doesn't justify his salary. I still think he is a decent quality center back, but I don't. I haven't seen any leadership from a captain um, from Michael Mancien. I I don't know a whole lot about him. I've seen a few interviews with him, but the fact that there is half the team not giving a ton of effort, I feel some of that responsibility falls on the captain. And I, I as I, I I've mentioned, you know, when it comes to tactics, it's hard to guess what you know you can do that can work when your team isn't giving 100 percent effort but i think one thing that you need to consider is taking that captain's armband away from michael mancien because half the team not giving your full effort um if i'm brad friedel i'm saying that to the press uh, i i think you also have to kind of look at the captain and and you need to give it to someone who can get the players going and can get the team going in the right direction so uh, i i want to throw that out there that i i i wouldn't think that the armband is going to be taken off him uh, this early into the season. I don't think that's something that Brad Friel is going to do, but I, I think uh, De La Mea stepping up and, and making some comments that and, and speaking truth, um, I, I think that is something that the team might respond to and might step up for it. I, I commend him for that. So I just want to throw that out there, that if I'm coaching the refs, De La Mea is coming out with the armband next week. Uh, in terms of performance, though, I agree with everything you said. Um, 
I think Brandon by is getting exploited more and more every week. Um, I, I think the corner, this isn't just the back line, but I think that second goal with the corner, um, just kind of a comedy of errors of people not knowing where to be, um, not knowing where to go. Unmarked guys in the box as it kind of pinballs around. Um, the first ball, Brandon by was exploded on the right. And even uh, though we, you know, it was the Hebo's man that scored, um, De La Maya kind of came off of his guy. And and uh, I, I'm not sure who, I think it might have been Ledesma, who uh, just barely misses the kick, but he finds a foot of space in the box as well. Um, really poor performance uh, from the team. Um, and, and going over to Brad Knighton, too, you're right. Uh, the play in the 40th minute is kind of forgotten about because. A lot of people will just focus on the goals, but uh, 40th minute, he goes out for a corner. Um, looks like he catches it. The ball's kind of knocked out of his arms, and luckily the Cincinnati player who got the ball uh, skies it over the bar. Easily could have been a 3 nothing game, 2 nothing at halftime. Um, really, I, I think it comes down to effort. I, I think we can see a lot better from that back four, um, and uh, I feel like we have the same conversations again and again and again, but um, yeah, overall... Uh, poor marks from this team and uh i'm a lot more discouraged compared to where i was uh two weeks ago after the columbus game um regarding defense and i'm not really sure if we're going to see any other new defensive players come in for this team we didn't see any in the off season um we'll talk about the second dp comments later but brad friedel kind of hinted that it is a player who will influence the attacking side of the game. So it's not going to be a defensive player. It's not going to be a goalkeeper. Um, and there's only two more senior roster spots that are available. So it's going to be in theory, a second designated player. And then you can bring in one more guy. I don't know who can bring in to fix this. So this is the back four, you know, love it or hate it uh, the rest of the season. So I, I hope we get better performances out of them. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think that Friedel's comments recognize that he probably needed some defensive help as well, but that's not where the, the DP is going to be based on his comments. So, um, you know, I don't know who they can get given there's two roster spots. One of them is going to go two senior roster spots. One of them is going to go to the DP. Um, I guess the other options are, you you know, cut a guy like Brian Wright or maybe Gabriel Somian and eat his salary, um, which would be pretty sad considering you could have cut him before the season started and, and not um, eat, a, eat a salary for salary cap purposes. But, um, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens there. But going back to the effort question or the, or the effort comment that, you know, Friedel made, you know, it's it's something it's very it's very interesting to me that, you know, you, you talked about his comments where, the, you know, there's when a lot of these players, when they lose, it doesn't hurt enough. There's no relegation. They don't get fined. They don't have fans waiting by their cars. They don't have people beating up, beating them up. They don't have all this. You know, they don't know the pressures that they have in other leagues. And that was the, the quote from Brad Friedel. Um, it, it seems like such a weak excuse uh, from Brad Friedel to be pointing to the, you know, the structures of other leagues and the pressures of other leagues that aren't here. You know, does does Atlanta United struggle because they don't have those pressures? Does Sporting Kansas City struggle because they don't have those pressures? Does LAFC struggle because they don't have those pressures? It's just such a weak excuse to me to to bring that up. And I know, you know, Heal mentioned relegation as well. He was specifically asked about it, so I can kind of, you know, throw that away. But you know, if if Friedel needs those type of pressures to get his players fired up, he shouldn't be coaching in this league. You know, he knew what he was getting into when he came to MLS. They don't have those, you know, there's not relegation. Uh, certainly in New England, there aren't guys waiting by people's cars, which I think is a good thing. Uh, you know, people <laughs> aren't, aren't worried about getting beat up after the match, which which they shouldn't be. Um, but if, if that's what Brad Friedel needs to motivate his players, what is he doing coaching in MLS? He needs to find another job. 
You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it, it doesn't happen here and it's not going to happen here. And, you know, other teams don't need that to be successful. If, if the, you know, trying to win an MLS Cup isn't enough motivation, you know, what are you doing? And if and if you're saying that you're, you're not going to win an MLS Cup, so you have to have relegation as a threat to motivate you, then what are you doing with your team that you don't think you're going to win an MLS Cup and can't convince them that, you know, there's something wrong there, too, if you can't convince your players that they're trying to challenge for MLS Cup, even if realistically they're not. I, and you know what? angers me too like I, i'm glad we're doing this wednesday night and not monday night because i i was i i would have had a lot more anger behind this but it is such a i don't want to say sca- scapegoat thing to say even we'll we'll get to the closed door meeting comments in a second but i because i'm going to go off on that too but but i've seen diego fagundes put an effort I have seen Andrew Farrell put an effort and Antonio De La Maya put an effort and Edgar Castillo put an effort. And last year, Christian Pena put an effort and Luis Caicedo and Wilfred Zahibo, I know probably never put an effort, but the guys that were on the field, they've been with this team outside of Avil and Castillo. They've been with the revolution and they put an effort last year and they, we didn't have relegation last year. To my understanding, revolution fans were not waiting by people's cars last year. Something has significantly changed between last year and this year, and it is not promotion and relegation. Regardless of whatever you think about promotion and relegation, if you're for or against it, it's it's so irrelevant to the players' efforts. Right now, the players are not putting in the performances that I, I think anyone thinks they can put in. There's too much talent for this team to be this bad. We should not be scrolling to the bottom of the MLS power rankings every single week to see if we beat out San Jose. We shouldn't be losing 2 nothing at home to Cincinnati. I've seen Diego Fagundes score 50 goals, be the youngest MLS player to score 50 goals. I saw him score 10 goals and, and have nine assists last year. Don't tell me that it's because of promotion and relegation. And don't tell me it's because there's no consequences. Because this group of players has been motivated in the past. So it's – I, I – you can only say the players aren't putting in the work so many times before it just appears like you're making excuses and you're passing along the buck. And I'll get to the closed door meeting here today because because it, it, I don't have the quote in front of me. But he essentially said that, you know, we had a closed door meeting. We said what we needed to say. The staff did what we could. I mean, <laughs> he, he's almost preemptively saying, I'm doing what I can. I'm doing what I can, and the players aren't responding, so blame them. And that does not cut it to me. Like, you can't just always blame the players. You can't have a million halftime interviews where you're yelling and screaming that the players aren't doing what you practice and they aren't putting in the work effort. Because after a while, that's on you, the coach, to get your players going. And we've in a, in a year and four games, we've had that halftime speech by Brad Friedel about how the players aren't doing what they what, what he wants them to do and how they're not putting in the work effort. And, and after a while, he's got to realize that's on him to figure out. He, he needs to do something differently so they are putting in the effort and they are listening to him and they're playing the tactics he wants, if, if that's truly what's happening. Because uh, it's just so ridiculous. I, 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 he, he, Friedel does not put any of the blame on him. And I don't know how many times we're going to have these exact same comments time and time again about mentality and about work rate. That's your job. That is your job to get them going. And and they came out flat in the home opener and they came out flat in this game against an expansion team at home. I'm done. 
Well, Go ahead, John. And, and, and honestly, you know, under Jay Heaps, there were a lot of things you could question. You could question the talent. You could question the tactics. Um, but I don't remember ever having to really question the effort of the players under Jay Heaps. Um, even towards the end when you, know, you thought maybe he lost a locker room, um, there were a lot of question marks. But I still don't think there was a lack of effort um, nope. from those guys out there. And the the one thing I will say to Brad Friedel's credit, which I don't think he, he really deserves, um, is after, you know, after all these times where he's not really put any blame on his staff, finally today, if you read the MLS soccer um, article about about, about Brad Friedel and the Revolution, he finally took some of the blame on his staff for, for motivating the players, and, and of course, you know, even in that, he put it on the staff, not necessarily on himself individually. Um, but you know, it's it's a start, I guess. I think uh, he's gotten a lot of blowback this week for his lack of kind of you know taking any responsibility on himself, and you know, maybe that led to him being forced to to go out there today and, and finally kind of take some blame on, him, on himself. But I, I'm completely with you that it's it's just crazy that. Um, after all this, you know, keeps blaming his players and, and never really puts any blame on himself. Uh, because, you know, if you can't motivate your players, that's on you. Yeah. And yeah, I, I mean, we, he's talking about people waiting by their cars. I mean, the, well, this is the same guy. That, this, Revs this, fans. I don't I'd be careful what you wish for here. This Brad, is the same guy that you is, might have. Some, you might have some fans standing by your car next week. <laughs> Well, and this is the I mean, guy that has basically said he wants his players to hate each other to to, to motivate yeah, each other more. Like, you want what people it, to take each other's jobs. Like, I, I understand the, the cutthroat mentality, and you come in every day with the exact same intensity. And and I'm not denying that the MLS functions differently than other leagues. Like, there are differences. But that, but as you say, I I don't remember a single time I questioned the players' effort. Uh, on a widespread scale when they were playing under Jay Heap. Say what you will about Jay Heaps. I, I don't think he was creative enough as a coach. I, I think he was fairly limited. But you know what? I, he he never threw his players under the bus like Brad Friedel has done time and time again. Let's do, Actually, that's another great question. Why would anyone want to play for Brad Friedel with the number of times he routinely throws players under the bus? I mean... Beats me. Uh, I... I'm amazed that there's only three people on the uh, injury report with the number of times that buses just ram over all these players after Brad Friedel throws them in front of them. They're going to have tire marks on their jerseys by the end of the season. Like, my goodness, every single week your boss just publicly announces that you suck to the to the Revolution broadcast. Like, it, it works once in a while. It works once in a while when there's a terrible effort and, and you know, you want to get them up. But my goodness, every single week they're not responding to it anymore. I, I liked it at first, but it's not a tactic that you can use week in and week out where we're losing because the players aren't trying hard enough. I, I mean, it, it's it's not working, Brad. It's not working. I mean, it's game four and you already need a closed door meeting to, to try to get these guys motivated. Like what's what's going on there? <laughs> yeah, so here's the quote. Let's let's move into the closed door meeting because I'm just going to get angrier and angrier at Brad Friel. And, and, and you know what, too? I, I don't mean to. Totally true. I'm not as negative on Brad Friedel as some other people. Some people already want him out. I, I do think he's on, honest and transparent to a certain degree. I just think he has a fault where he doesn't seem to understand that he has faults as well. He, he seems to always be, whether it's intentional or not, he's pinning way too much of the failure on the players and not on him and his inability to adjust. We saw that last year with the high press fading out towards the end of the season. Okay, bring in a few new players and, and adjust your tactics all the way around you know what he's doing right now is not is is not working and to just blame it on effort is uh, it, it's i'm t- it's i'm very tired of it but here, here's what uh, brad friel said on the closed door meeting uh with his players also known as a meeting it's just 
staff and players at a, at a meeting. Typically, the door is closed in a meeting. But just, anyway, just just on that point, like you you talk when when people talk about closed door meetings, usually it's you know called a closed door meeting because it's after a game, um, and they, they close the doors longer than normal so the media can't get in. It's not a just typical team meeting before before practice, um, or a situation where you know players come and confront a, a coach. So it is a little bit of a weird term to use for a standard team meeting before practice, at least in my mind. A closed door meeting too means you don't announce what people what what, what was said. That you is the point. Say, hey, we had a closed door meeting about effort. Like, okay, I, I don't want to dwell too much on it because I it's a little silly to argue about words. But here we are. Anyway, they had a quote unquote closed door meeting. Uh, here's the direct quote from Brad Friel. Uh We had to address it, meaning the work rate. Uh, we had to address it. It's never nice meetings. Now that we've said our piece as a staff. We have to look forward in a positive way to Minnesota. So more or less, it sounds like the staff was giving it to the players. I don't know if it was meant to come across that way, um, but that seems like a meeting to me. And that seems like they were trying to straighten out the players in regards to um, work rate and effort. Maybe the players said things about what they feel is not working. Maybe they gave productive feedback back to Brad Fiedel. I, I don't know. And we won't see until um, this week against Minnesota at home, which God, I hope they get a point from. But um, Sean, uh, what was your reaction to this closed door meeting? Why didn't you say it on Sunday after the game? <laughs> like what, what, what did you need to stew over it from Sunday till Tuesday to then, you know, call on the players and tell them their effort sucks instead of, you know, you could have said what you said to the media about their effort on Sunday. Um, you know, in the 13th minute press conference, which is about you know five times longer than his normal press conferences go uh, instead of, you know, waiting till Tuesday to say it. I'm not really sure what what was gained by waiting till Tuesday. Uh, I'm also not sure what was gained by you know telling everybody about it um, and, and telling them that it was about the effort or the work rate rather. Um, but it, it's it just strikes me that you know four games into the season having to resort to to something like this um, is is not a great sign. Um, but you know, again, you know, why wasn't this said Sunday? Why, why Tuesday? Why now? And why go talk about it to the media? It's a closed door meeting. Isn't the whole point of that to keep it between your teammates and, and yourself? Um, and, and on that note, uh, just to kind of contrast it, um, you know, another team that had, you know, sort of a closed door meeting was Orlando on Saturday. And this was a players only meeting ca- called by Nanny, their you know star DP from, from Portugal. Um, and he called that meeting before their game on the road against the Red Bulls. Um, they went out there and won the game. They didn't talk about the meeting until after the game. And then they said, hey, you know, we had this meeting and, you know, it worked out. We talked things over and we won this game. That's usually how you hear about closed door meetings is after the fact when, when a team goes out there and has a good performance. And, you know, they reference that as a positive going forward, not the coach saying, you know, we, we you know, crapped on their effort and their work rate and we had to address it. We did it behind closed doors. And now we'll see if it works. And I hope there's more to it. I I mean, I I can't, you don't have a closed door meeting. Usually if you have a closed door meeting and it it gets out, you, or you could say we had a meeting, but I'm not going to talk about what happened. I mean, Bradford literally has a closed door meeting, then goes and says, Hey, 15 minutes ago, we had a meeting about this. Here's what we said. And now that we've done this as a staff, it's on the team. I mean, that's more or less what he's saying. Cause, cause I guarantee you every single player in that locker room, Heard what Brad Friedel said at halftime. They heard what he said after the game, which I don't know if you want to get into that. That was a bit of a bizarre press conference. Um, but yes, it was. I mean, I, Brad, they know they know you question their effort. We all know that. You say that again and again and again, pretty much after every loss. So for them, for him to come out and say we had a closed door meeting and we the staff addressed the effort and the work rate. One, you don't need to say it. Two, the fact that I feel like it is just to 
signal to the fan base that once again the coaches have have put into the players that hey you're not working hard enough and if they lose oh that's on the players they should have responded i i don't i feel this is a bit of a pr spin where <laughs> they're if it's closed door meeting, you wouldn't you wouldn't say it. If if it was honestly just about getting a message across, you'd just say it. But it seems like it's the exact same message that Brad Friedel broadcast to the world twice on Sunday, and he broadcasted it to the world right after the meeting. So I'm sure there was additional things that were said, and and maybe it was a productive meeting. But the fact that it kind of came out just so bluntly as, yeah, we questioned their effort. Like, yeah, of course you did. No crap. Like, yeah, duh. I'm angry this week, Sean. I, I'm very annoyed. And I apologize to our listeners. This is, this is me very irritated. I'm so glad we're doing this on Wednesday, not Monday, because I'm screaming. Oh. Well, my, my other question when you talk about like the the nanny meeting is, is has Michael Mancien, you know, the $1.4 million man uh, and captain with all of his experience, has he ever, you know, taken it upon himself to call a players only meeting and, you know, ask everybody, what are they doing? Because if he has, we've never heard about that. And you know, it's not a it's not a bad thing if he's done it and we've never heard about it. But if it's a if he's never done it at all, you know, you might have to start questioning again, you know, why he's captain or, you know, where the leadership is in this team other than Brad Friedel. Um, so, you know, yes, the, the players deserve plenty of the blame, uh, but Friedel consistently, you know, trashing his players and not really taking the blame on himself and t- until today um, is, you know, very frustrating. Let's move on from effort for the time being. I'm sure we'll address it again when Twitter questions come in, because uh, surprisingly, Sean, uh, some of our Twitter followers also questioning the team effort. I, <laughs> who would have guessed? Um, but we're going to move on to the second designated player because this came up again. Um, and a, a couple of interesting quotes. Brad Friel drops a, a little tidbit every now and then, which um, kind of leads people to guess who it is. Um, kind of teases us a little bit that there is maybe hope coming in the future. So this second designated player, he wants us to all know he's uh, very, very real. It's not a figment of imagination. Um, the exact quote is, uh, and, and this is probably the, the biggest hint so far of what the holdup is, um, getting a player out of Europe who's very good in January is really difficult, really difficult. This has nothing to do with money. It has to do with the club allowing the player to leave. That's really what it amounts to. Um, Friedel also didn't say anything really specific. He didn't give any names or positions, um, but I believe he said that he, the player, I don't have the quote, but uh, he was going to dictate tempo and help with uh, the tempo of the game. Um, so that's another little hint there. He also says that he's known this guy for a long, long time, uh, for many years, and uh, the player wants to be here, which I don't know why he would want to be here if he's that good. But uh, <laughs> Sean... What are your thoughts on these uh, new round of quotes? And uh, I don't know if you, you heard the press conference yesterday. Do you have um, any uh, kind of additional thoughts on uh, Brad Friedel's uh, very interesting uh, post-game press conference on Sunday? Well, we already talked a bit about the position of the player, but my, 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 I thought the most interesting part about his quotes on Sunday in regards to the DP was that where he was saying that he wasn't the one that brought it out publicly, and if it was up to him, he probably wouldn't have put it out there, um, which to me seemed like a kind of a swipe at Brian Bolello because I think he was the first one that, that put that out there. Um, so not only was Friedel taking swipes at his player, he was also taking swipes at the Revolution president in his press conference, which is just a, an interesting tack to take um, when you've won three of your last 20 games and you know you're you're maybe getting to be on the hot seat a little bit um but you know it was it was very interesting that Friedel was so long-winded in his answers today because he's generally a pretty concise guy and and there weren't really more questions on Sunday than he normally gets asked 
um, and usually he tries to, you know, they try to cut it short. Um, but it, it, I don't know. It was just a, a very, very fascinating uh, press conference from Friedel in which he kind of called out the media. He kind of called out the revolution president. You know, he kind of called out um, his players, um, you know, and didn't really call out himself. Um, so that, <laughs> if, you're, if you're talking for my takeaway from the press conference, it's, it's Friedel ha- likes to you know pass around a lot of blame. Um, but, you know, again, until today's MLS soccer article doesn't really like putting that blame on himself. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree, too. And I, I also wonder, too, you know, Brad Friedel clearly wants to bring in guys from Europe. And he's talked a little bit before about his connections, which um, actually we did have a – someone mentioned in our um, – Oh, maybe it wasn't in our comments, but it was it was somewhere on Twitter. Uh, someone mentioned, you know, Brad Friedel might be potentially talking about his connections and these players that he's bringing in and that he, you know, guys that he knows very well because he knows that um, his job might be up in the air this year. Uh, and if his coaching performance doesn't save him, maybe his connections to Europe will. I actually don't. Uh, I'm not going to discredit that theory. Uh, he certainly seems to talk about his connections a lot, and and he seems to relate success to bringing in these guys from Europe. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, he he seems like he's a little nervous. He seems like he's deflecting blame a little bit. And also the shot at Biello, which it seemed to me that that was a kind of finger pointing at the front office that maybe the front office overhyped expectations uh, this offseason about um, I think it was two designated designated players uh, in the offseason might have made his life a little bit more difficult because he is the one that has to go out and answer these questions about the designated player. Um, I assume that the team who currently has this player was planning on releasing him or or sending him to the revolution in the winter uh, transfer window, um, but something has happened. Maybe there is a relegation battle that they want to uh, keep this player for. Um, clearly, there's some circumstances out of the revolution's control, and I understand those things happen. Um, but yeah, it, it seems like there is a lot of tension between probably Brad Friedel and the locker room, first off, after we've talked about effort for the last 10 minutes. Um, but also it seems like there is some issues between him and the front office, uh, and kind of the way he wants to manage and build this roster. So, um, overall, very interesting press conference. Um, we got a little bit more information than we, we typically do, which is, which is good. Um, but yeah, I, I, and, and as I mentioned too, in regards to the second defensive player, I'm expecting a midfielder at this point. Um, I, I, I think Juan Fernando Caicedo or Caicedo two is going to be, starting in, in the lineup soon and, and hopefully he turns out to be a, a decent player but um you know i i think they have the players that they want on the wings um they have carlos Hill. um I, I think the big need is that zahibo spot because I, I don't think he wants to move caicedo or called where they're called there long term and i think zahibo can't stay there full term and, and and talking about the tempo I, I think it's a possession kind of player that he wants to put in the midfield to solidify the midfield so yeah that that's my guess on where we're going with this no idea who, who it could possibly be. I know I, I've seen some people speculating on Twitter, but um, very curious to see how this situation develops. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious to see if there's any more hints about the second DP that's teased following any more revolution losses. Cause it seems like when the revolution hit a losing streak, the second designated player uh, who's definitely real uh, comes up again and again and again. So, well, it's yep. just, it's just funny if it was a situation where Friedel was, you know, not happy that they're kind of overhyping things. Um, that Friedel was the guy who 
back, I believe, in November or whenever they, they were announcing the talking about the training center, uh, talked about how they're going to be big changes in this offseason and, you know, seemed to be very clearly talking about players. Um, even the Revolution's, you know, own website, I think it was Jeff Lemieux, wrote an article about it where it was, you know, said he was talking about players. And then a couple of days later, he walked it back and said he wasn't necessarily talking about players, um, which kind of made me think that, you know, the front office you know, maybe talked to him, you know, maybe Mike Burns or Brian Blello had talked to him that he was overhyping things. <laughs> so I'd, I'd really like to be a fly on the wall and, and know how those conversations go um you know where you have that happening in you know november or, or early in the in the in the off season and then this happening now where he's kind of you know questioning why that information was put out there um but you know overall everything just seems to be a complete mess for the revolution at this point in time yep yep and and just to uh pull up that quote uh, here's what friedel said just so you have the exact quote so you know we're not making it up um, I wasn't the one that brought this out, brought it out publicly. Uh, I have to answer questions on it because it came from within the club. It was already put out there. So I've been asked questions about it almost every press conference. So no, I probably wouldn't have put it out there, but it's out there, but it is happening. So, uh, yeah, interesting, um, <laughs> interesting, uh, quotes from Brad Friedel. And, uh, I will note too, that Charlie Davies, who, um, you know, does local media. He does the Far Post podcast. He also did uh, a national uh, uh, interview today, a podcast where he kind of said that things are pretty dark right now. And so it's kind of interesting to hear the brand ambassador for the revolution kind of talk about how uh, it's it's not a good place right now. The revolution, there seems to be a lot of tension. So he didn't say the part about the tension, but it, it seems pretty clear to me that um, up and down this team from management to what's happening on the field, um, nothing is going in the right direction. So Fun. Uh, Sean, do you want to get to some Twitter questions? I, I think it's about that time. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I know. I'm, I'm a bit crabby <laughs> today. Um, <laughs> so, so is everybody else. All right. So uh, Zachary Grimes asks us, uh, is there anyone specific to blame for the di- digression of the team? Or is this accumulation of bad decisions from the front offices, front office and bad performances from the players? I'd love to hear what you have to say, Sean. <laughs> I mean, I don't think there's any one person you can can blame for this. Um, I think, as we've discussed, Friedel deserves a lot of the blame. I don't think he has a way to to fix this. Um, I don't think he's you know has the tactical ideas to to put the revolution in the position they are to win, and he doesn't appear to be able to motivate the team. So that's certainly a huge problem. Um, I don't think the roster decisions made by Mike Burns over the years have been good enough and have put them in a position where they can be competitive with the the rest of the team. Um, so I think there's a lot of blame there too. And you know, like we talked about, the players' effort wasn't there, and you know, to some extent, it is on the players to to motivate themselves. And if they you know can't find a way to do that, um, then some of the blame falls on them. But if it's five or six players that that can't motivate themselves, that speaks to a lot larger issue than just individual players struggling to motivate themselves. Um, so no, there's not one player or one person that the blame can go on, but I think there's a, a whole host of people that deserve a share of the blame for where this team is right now. Yeah. And I tweeted out something that, you know, I, I made a tweet that, you know, does anyone get the feeling that the Reds are a very, very bad team? And I think it was James Downing who, who, uh, has a lot of Twitter questions for us. I know we've mentioned him a bunch of times on the podcast. Uh, he said that he, I don't remember exact quotes, but he said he thinks the team is a lot better than what they're playing at. And I agree. I I, I don't think the Reds are a very very bad team. I think they're just a very very bad organization, um, top to bottom. I, I think there is just below average job performance across the board. I think the the players aren't performing where they can, and I don't think they're giving the best effort. I think Brad Friedel is learning on the job. And he potentially has already lost the locker room at worst. At best, he's just struggling with tactics right now and trying to get the pieces to fit. And right now, in this moment in time, he can't do it. And maybe he'll figure it out in the future. I think Mike Burns should have been gone years ago. 
I know I've said that a bunch of times. Um, I'm not sure what value he adds, especially if Brad Friedel's the one bringing in the players and being the GM of the team. Um, Mike Mearns' record is not very good, and he has a poor reputation. I know we've talked about that before, um, how Ron Waxman, who is an agent, um, continually calls out Mike Burns as having a negative reputation and being a person that um, keeps players away from Foxborough. Um, and it seems like, you know, <laughs> we always talk about the crafts and the ownership they don't seem to have a lot of effort into uh, giving the budget to bring in these players um, and, and to expand them to compete with the top teams. Um, it's, the Revolution are certainly not going to be a team that uh, buys their way into the playoffs. Um, they're going to provide a you know decent budget, but it seems like the people below ownership are going to overspend on players like Somi and Zahibo and Mantien, and they're going to blow money on these players in an effort to recruit players to a, a place no one wants to be. Uh, because the coaching is bad, because the stadium uh, is an empty football uh, stadium, and uh, because turf. morale is extremely low. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's, it's, a, it's, we have to overpay for players to get here, um, and I think back to the MLS Cup in 2014, and I remember when we were um, writing for New England Soccer Today, RIP. Um, I, I had an article saying that you know there's a young core to this team, and they can build off of this run. They might have lost the MLS Cup, but there's no reason for this team not to be back there in a few years. And it just seems like they have regressed every single year since then. Um, so yeah, all around, I mean, to get to this point, I mean, we were talking about one of the lowest points, potentially one of the lowest seasons um, in Revolution history. Um, this this lands on, I would say, the front office. Um, it, it certainly bears some responsibility on the players and the coaching, but the front office needs uh, to take a lot of heat for this as well. Um, anyway, long-winded answer. Sorry. Joe, uh, and, and I want to touch on this one too. Uh, Mike Burns is an evil genius. He's smart enough to fire Brad to save his job once again. Um, it's interesting comment. I know it's a joke, but... Um, I, I honestly think that if Brad Friedel is fired, Mike Burns has to go as well. I can't believe Mike Burns and Jay Heaps weren't shown the door at the same time too. Um, I, I assume Mike Burns, if he's not bringing in the players, he brought in Brad Friedel. And if Brad Friedel doesn't work out, Mike Burns has to go. Um, Sean, any, any additional thoughts on that one? Yeah. I mean, the only, th I'd, I'd like to agree with you. Um, the only thing that makes me question it is if you look at the time when when Mike Burns got his initial promotion, it was after the you know I think the worst season in Revolution history, um, and yeah, so so I'm not sure that you know poor performance necessarily leads to Mike Burns getting you know taking responsibility for it and, and getting kicked out the door. Um, but I do think that Brad Friedel right now is very much on the hot seat, um, and you know another another loss to Minnesota, and you know I don't think that's going to be the end of him, but. Uh, a lot of questions start getting asked, and you know, usually you think a guy like him is going to get two seasons. But if they continue on this path, and you know, we get close to July, um, I don't know how you don't make a move. Well, and, and actually, Mike Kennedy asked us, uh, "Is it too reactionary to wonder if Friedel should be on the hot seat?" I, I, last year, I would have said, "Yeah, I mean, he's getting two years regardless." But the I, I remember a question like this came up last year, and I said, "You know, there's no reason to ever fire a guy this early into their tenure, unless." Uh, unless they've lost the locker room. And I'm getting the feeling that he's lost the locker room. I, maybe that's wrong. I don't know what happens behind those closed door meetings that are super private. Um, but, you know, if he's lost the locker room and players aren't responding to him, man, that's tough. That is tough. And I, I don't know how he comes back from it unless he turns over the entire team and brings in, a, you know, he builds around a young core and he signs some DPs that can help build up that young core. It, it's totally possible, but 
I, I don't think the Revolution front office has the means or the effort into bringing in an entirely new team. They seem to be content with the players that they have. And I, I think that the Revolution front office is more likely to swap out the coach and keep the roster that they have and try to find a coach that works. So um, I, I think Brad Friedel will be on the hot seat if they don't turn around pretty quickly. I would say the earliest I could see them letting him go is kind of August or September when the season's already in doubt. I think 2019 has to be long gone uh, for him to be let go. Um, but uh, if you had asked me before the season if Bradford would be fired, I would have said an, an emphatic no. Uh, but I, I I certainly think it's on the table, um, which is just goes to show how poorly this month has gone. Um, I, I think there's more pressure there, too, because, you know, the Crafts off-rise going out there and, and signing Carlos Hill, who's, you know, other than Jermaine Jones, the most expensive player they've ever signed and paid a $2 million transfer fee and, and all of that. Um, I think there's more pressure that the Revolution you know, at least be okay this year if they have one of their worst seasons in history after they went out and made that expenditure and you know, potentially their, their second DP as well. Um, I do think that puts him even more on the hot seat. Yep. Uh, and don't forget, Michael Mancien is not cheap either. I mean, he he is essentially a DP. Um, with his with his salary uh, and how hyped he, he was coming in, he should be uh, and, he should be a DP. Um, except the Revolution are using up all their allocation money on him. Um, correct. You know, if if this new guy comes in mid season, I'm pretty sure the roster rules would allow the Revolution to have bought down Mancien mid season at a half season cap charge and use half as much allocation money, which they then could have used to you know bring somebody else in instead of using a full season of allocation money to to buy him down at the full cap charge. Um, so, you know, if he comes, if this new GP comes in July, uh, it seems like that's just wasted money by the revolution, other than the fact that the money is coming from the league instead of out of the ownership. Yep. Yep. Um, we have a question that's also somewhat related, uh, DC at 10 done 29, uh, this franchise had a chance to build off the JJ run and had great attendance for three years. Who to blame for the fall off the crafts or Brian or Burns. We kind of touched on, on that already. So we won't rehash that, uh, that rant. Um, but, uh, he also says, I think the only thing that can jumpstart this franchise again is a SSS announcement, a soccer specific stadium. Sean, what can jumpstart the franchise? Is it a stadium or is there any other hope for this team? So I've been saying it for a while now. I think the revolution arc, you know, and have been waiting to get that soccer specific stadium before they, you know, invest more into the team and perhaps rebrand. Um, but it's getting to the point now where they, they can't really afford to wait any longer. Um, because, you know, you look at the attendances at these games. Yes, they're always horrible at the beginning of the season, but it, it was pathetic against Cincinnati. And it was actually a really nice day um, for that early in the year. Uh, you know, it's, it's, I think the revolution need to find a way to, to turn things around and maybe rebrand now and not wait to get a soccer specific stadium unless they know that's coming right around the corner, which, you know, I don't think it is. Is. Um, I, I just don't know how much longer you can wait uh, for that to happen and, and, and you know, continue to lose your fan base and continue to have you know, this negative press in the media and continue to grow this negative reputation among players. But yep. right, right now, that's all I can see fixing it as a soccer-specific stadium and you know, kind of a rebrand and a, you know, revamp around that. See, I, I actually kind of disagree. I, I think if you bring in a guy that can sell jerseys and get people excited, I mean, there is a fan base of soccer. Maybe not the revolution, but there is a fan base of soccer in New England. Um, I mean, how many people showed up to the L.A. Galaxy game with Zlatan in town and he didn't even – he ended up not even playing. But um, I, I think if you get a guy – maybe a bigger name than Jermaine Jones. I know Jermaine Jones, it was right after the World Cup. Um, he was a bit of a marketable star, but I don't think a lot of the casual fans knew him. Um, but I, I think if you bring in a guy with someone like Wayne Rooney's name brand, um, I, I think that brings in some fans. I think that brings in some interest. Um, so I, I 
I do think there is a way to um, increase the markability if you are able to bring in a guy who can sell jerseys and give you some results on the field. I, I do think you can get your attendance back up. Um, I, I don't think that's going to happen. I'm not sure who this um, designated player is. Maybe it is going to be someone who um, is going to make the team more marketable. Maybe he is going to be just as good as Carly Zeal. Um, but I, I, I don't have a whole lot of hope just because this team seems to be in such turmoil. Um I don't know. No, nothing seems to be going right for this team. So I, I, I do think there are some steps they can take that are non-soccer specific stadium related. Um, but I don't know. The fan base is pretty pissed off. <laughs> um, actually, and on that note, kind of answering this question, John Trainer asks, does anyone seriously think one more designated player is going to solve all the problems with this team? We urgently need a defensive midfielder and a right back, but even that isn't going to help with a coach that seems like he's already lost the dressing room. Uh, so kind of touches upon some points that uh, I've already talked about. Um, Sean, do you think one designated player makes that big of a difference? Uh, it can help a little bit, but is it going to solve the Revolution's problems? No. No. No, and, and I mean, we've seen Jermaine Jones come in and, and the team kind of clicks all at the same time. Wayne Rooney certainly had a very positive effect on DC. I, I think you... So, so if can you, get a guy that I, I will in, but, clarify but, that if you went out there and got a like absolute superstar player um, that can you know be a complete game changer and perhaps you know a central midfielder and a guy that's a leader and could be the captain and all of those things came together, maybe maybe that could turn things around and get them you know towards the playoffs. But um, you know from you know, I, I don't have any inside scoop on the, the designated player that's coming in, but from what I you know have heard, I don't think this guy is going to be you know a bigger name than Carlos Heel or a, you know a, a more influential player than Carlos Heel. And Carlos Heel is great, but you know signing a second guy that's close to or not quite as good as Carlos Heel um, is not going to fix this team. Yeah, that sounds about right. I will say too, we talk about Mancian. Mancian's salary is what did you say? One point four million? One one million? It's just one point three seven, I believe, was what it was last year. Okay, so you have to think, too, that if he's a designated player, that salary figure is going to be well above the 1.37 figure. It probably will be closer to Carlos Eel's, uh $2 million. So, I mean, we are talking about a serious player, but you're right. If it's someone on Carlos Eel's level and you're putting him in the mid- midfield, this team is digging enough of a hole that I don't know if it would help them make the playoffs this season. Um, so, yeah, I, I there's a ton of problems with this team, as John says. Um the designated player might stabilize things a little bit and might get them going in the right direction. But I, I as he says, there's still a problem with uh, the outside back. I think there's some problems with the tactics because nothing seems to be going right. They seem to be very uncreative and just kicking long balls and hoping for the best. Um, there's a there's a lot to uh, question with this team right now. And, and as I say, maybe a, de- a second designated player, you know, maybe we get another Carlos Hill who, uh, you know, really influences the team and, and really brings a lot of positives. But yeah, this is a dumpster fire right now. Um, Paulo S, uh, is it time to start JFC? So yes, but I will qualify that by saying I haven't been extremely impressed by him on the limited minutes he's had so far. He's looked a bit slow to me and maybe that's because he's you know still gaining fitness. Um, but you know, why not? I think Teal Bunbury is one of the hardest working players. I don't think he had a particularly great game. Um, you know, now that's working, might as well throw out the, the Tam striker that you signed to give him a few more minutes and, and see what he can do. But I'm, you know, I'm not holding my breath that he's going to be the solution to the revolution's offensive woes. Yeah. I mean, you might as well too. I, I don't think you've gotten Teal Bunbury has had his, had his moments this year. Uh, obviously he had a good 
game in Toronto. But overall, I'd say for three of the four games, he hasn't really impressed me. Um, granted, some of those games he was kind of playing on the right, and he didn't really impress too, too much there. Um, Juan Agadello did not impress very much either, um, which was kind of a shock to me. But he's been relegated to the bench. He did not play at all on Sunday. So, uh, I mean, this is a guy that I think they hyped up. I think it's time to put him in the lineup, see what he can do. If he's at full fitness, I will say I don't know uh, where his fitness is at. Maybe he's in that 90 minutes yet. Uh, but still, home game, uh, I'd like to see him. They, they have a, a couple road games and a couple of tough fixtures coming up. I think it's easier to send him out there, get him 60 minutes, see how he meshes with the team. Maybe he can, you know, get a couple shots on. Maybe he can get a, a couple of chances. Um, I, I think it's time to see what we've got with him because right now they need an offensive spark. Uh, I think if you end up sending out the same uh, lineup and sending up Teal, Teal Bunbury up top, um, that doesn't really strike me as a lot of enthusiasm. I think we see uh, so the same results. Um, there needs to be some changes, and uh, hopefully Caicedo, too, uh, brings a spark and brings some energy, uh, and, and hopefully he can get off on the right foot and, and bring some offense. Um, I'm not sure if we don't see him against Minnesota. I, I assume it is fitness-related. I assume he's not 90 minutes ready, and they don't want to um, start him. But uh, I'm not sure how much longer we have to wait for him, considering that not a whole lot was made about this injury coming into the season. So, um, yeah, I, I would say it's time to start them, but who knows? It, it seems like they're being a little cryptic with uh, injuries. Yeah, I mean, no, I'm, I'm with you. I think there's no reason not to, to give him a chance at this point if he's, if he's fit because nothing else is working. Aguadelo has you know, kind of clearly fallen out of favor. And, you know, Bunbury, despite, you know, he's a guy that I don't think you can ever really question his effort. Um, but, you know, the results aren't always there. I, you know, when they are, um, he scores some spectacular goals, but he's not reliable enough. And uh, just to wrap up, uh, Randy asks us, uh, what's your favorite beer to drink while the Revs uh, are – sorry, let me start again. What's your favorite beer to drink while watching the Revs play slash lose? Well, my favorite beer to drink in general is the the Lawson Sip of Sunshine, but I think I might need something a bit stronger to continue watching the Revs play the way they've been playing now. So any suggestions um, to our great listeners, if you want to tweet at us your suggestions of best beer to drink uh, while the Revolution are losing, I'm, I'm more than open to trying it. And, you know, I think I have to uh, represent uh, my home state of Maine. Uh, I know it's a little basic. I know I'm going to take some flack for this. But you know what? Sometimes you just need an Allagash White. Natural goodness of Maine. Uh, But, uh, yeah, you know what? I I do have a recommendation for you. It's not a beer because judging by the way this season is going, you're going to need a little bit – something a little bit stronger than an Allagash White. Um, I I will say I was up in Canada this past weekend and my aunt and uncle uh, were – we we had dinner and they offered us uh, they said they asked us if we wanted an after dinner drink and they pulled out all of their bottles of liquor that they've collected from their travels over the year and uh, my mother and I took a, a not a shot because we're weak and we're not <laughs> I, I really could not stomach this but it was forty five percent alcohol content some uh, it was some brandy from Czechoslovakia and I thought that was terrible. Uh, but I mean, it, it actually was not as horrible as you would think, but my uncle pulled out another bottle and it was just this gold liquid, uh, and it said it was 90% alcohol, uh, volume, uh, and he took a sip of that and, uh, that was on Saturday night. And when I left Tuesday morning, he said he could still feel it in the back of his throat. So, uh, my recommendation for you, Sean, and any other Revs fan is that, uh, fans, I don't know what it's called, but there's a gold bottle of something from Czechoslovakia. I don't actually know if it really is a vodka or brandy or any, I, I don't know what it's really just alcohol it's really just liquid alcohol um and i'd recommend doing probably two or three shots of those uh for home games probably need five or six for road games because it is going to be a long season long hey hey, they've been better on the road this year than at home (laughs) sort of 
Hey, you, know, you know what? Maybe you, you know what? Yeah, that's a good point. So maybe maybe just do two or three in general, uh, and then see how that goes. You're right, though, Sean. They have been better on the road than at home. Somehow, it's very interesting. <laughs> I don't know. You know, and and also maybe maybe it's just that no fans are waiting by their cars. Maybe that would really encourage them to play better at home. You never know. Um, maybe maybe that's what Frito's going to do. Hire a few people. Hey, <laughs> you know what? It really suggested like that's what he was like. Hey, <laughs> wait by their cars and tell them how you feel. All right, Brad. Okay, buddy. Um, some injury updates because uh, there have been a, a fairly irregular number of injuries, but for the Revolution, um, Tayon Buchanan has been resumed to uh, clear, uh, to resume full training. Um, he had a bit of a stress fracture uh, from a few weeks ago. I guess it was um, a recurrence of a previous injury. Um, Isaac Anking uh, went under knee surgery, so it looks like he's going to be out for a little bit, which is really disappointing. We're hoping to see some Anking. He cannot catch a break. Boy, I tell you, man, he's I mean, he's still very young, but um, man, yeah, he had that illness last season that kept him out most of the year. He's having knee surgery this year. He seemed to be, I, I think he played in a uh, uh, an academy game two weeks ago and he had a very strong game. I, I saw I think Jonathan Siegel mention it. Um, uh, also, Justin Renix, who was with the U20 team, uh, the USA U20 team last week, um, he was pulled in the first half. He suffered a grade one grade one hamstring strain. Uh, that is about a two to four week timeline. So he'll probably be out a month. Um, not that he was starting, but, um, potential bench piece that I think the revs were hoping to work into their rotation. Um, we won't see him for another few weeks. So, um, disappointing, uh, result overall for Justin Rennix, uh, from his international break. Um, Sean, do you have any shout outs or final thoughts? No, just the only thing to add on the, on the running thing is by the time he comes back, it might be time to prepare for the U-20 World Cup. So the Revolution fans may not be seeing him for a while, assuming he's you know healthy enough to to make that roster. But, um, you know, I think I think as a, you know, if you're a Revolution fan, something you should be looking forward to is, is hopefully watching him play for the U-20 World Cup because it's been a, you know, a while since the the Revolution have had a player, you know, really playing in, in, in any World Cup and being a, a regular starter for, you know, a team even at the U-20 level. Nope, that's a very good point, too. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they develop Justin Rex, too. I know we've talked about the Revolution's failure to develop players in the past, and you know, here we have three, three players. When, hurt, what? So it's kind of hard to, to develop them, but uh, I'm curious to see how they mix in these players and, and monitor them, especially with Renex and his international duty. One note there is just when we talk about developing players, and we didn't you know, talk about this before when they talked when we talked about the, the loans, but just, just thinking about it, it's kind of hilarious that you know, after all of Friedel's talk about mentality and, you know, implying that the players that were holdovers last year uh, from the Heaps era like, didn't necessarily have the best mentality that, he, you know, they went off and loaned two guys and, and Brian Wright and Zach Caravu, who, albeit are, are guys that, you know, I don't think we think have much of a future on the team, uh, to Jay Heaps' coaching staff down there in, in Birmingham, you know, where he will, in theory, instill the same mentality he instilled on those players that are on the revolution now. So just a, a weird food for thought thing, thinking about that more after we've had some time to, to digest those loans no that's a very very good point um i don't have a whole lot of final thoughts i will say uh just because we kind of touch upon the uh, u.s open cup and other uh notes on local soccer um if there's any soccer you guys want to watch any of our listeners want to uh watch this weekend that does not involve uh drinks that are 90 percent alcohol by volume uh, or does not involve you know severe hair loss um the bay state soccer league is starting up this weekend um you can go to bssl.com uh, they have the bssl cup 
uh, starting up this weekend. Uh, you can go to their website to see the schedule coming up. But uh, their full season starts on April 6th. So there's going to be some local, local soccer. If you guys need to take a break, need to watch something that uh, doesn't make you scream, doesn't make you want to go out to the players' cars to uh, wait for them. Uh, so just, just want to let you guys know that there all are alternatives if you want to watch some stress-free soccer that you might be able to enjoy. So just want to throw out that note. Um, so yeah, that, that just about does it, Sean, this was probably our most stressful podcast, at least from my, my perspective, I got a lot more riled up than I thought I was going to be. I thought I was calm, but uh, I have a little bit of PTSD from watching these, uh, the rewatching the game after I knew how it ended. Uh, and, uh, I was still somehow disappointed. So, yeah, it's, it's really both watching the game and then hearing the excuses afterwards that just make it a, uh, not enjoyable experience. <laughs> Okay. Well, we will be back uh, next weekend, potentially even angrier uh, to cover the game against the Minnesota United. Um, you can follow us at Revolution Recap. Uh, please also leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. Sean, where can the good people follow you on you Twitter? Can, you can follow me at Sean L. Donahue. Uh, and don't forget to like our Facebook page. One day we'll acknowledge it. One day we'll ask for questions on Facebook. We didn't do it this week because we forgot. And also I was out of the country. So I have flaws, people. I have flaws. But uh, until next week, thank you for listening and go Revs. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.